Welcome back to Anecdotal Anatomy. We are so happy you're here. I'm Sherry Sadoff-Hank. I'm Teresa Tobin-Macy. Today marks the first episode of the second half of our first season, the part where we include special guests in our casual conversation. We have the amazing good fortune to start this portion of the podcast with Shauna Ahern. Whether you know Shauna's name from her once extremely popular blog, Gluten-Free Girl, from her many books, talks, teachings on joy, or you're just hearing her name now for the first time, you're in for a conversation like no other. Shauna is the embodiment of joy. Shauna will be using her many skills to walk us through her journey from trauma to joy and how her body often guided her steps. I already feel the joy bubbling up. Let's go. Welcome back to Anecdotal Anatomy. We are still in season one, but we're now at episode six, which means we get to interview or have a casual conversation with our very first guest. Mm -hmm. I personally couldn't be more thrilled with our selection of guests. I've known this woman for decades. We met in New York City. We've experienced, and whatever we didn't experience together, we've witnessed of the other on our journeys and how we've expanded, evolved, how we've grown into the people we are today, and still with a hint of where we're going. It's all very mm-hmm. exciting. <laughs> no more, no more suspense. Our guest is Shauna M. Ahern. And I'm just going to read the bio. This is what you gave me. I'm just going to read it right out and then we'll, we'll embark on our casual conversation. Shauna M. Ahern is a writer, teacher, and a lifelong believer in people. She loves to help others find their joy. Shauna built a huge online community through her food blog, Gluten-Free Girl, which was the world's first gluten-free food blog. She and her husband, Daniel, taught culinary getaways in a villa in Tuscany, appeared on the Food Network, and won a James Beard Award for one of their three much-beloved cookbooks. After writing Gluten-Free Girl for 12 years, Shauna wrote a memoir about her childhood trauma and how she unraveled herself from it to help others. That book, Enough, Notes from a Woman Who Has Finally Found It, was recommended by Brene Brown, The Washington Post, and thousands of readers who say the book has changed their lives. These days, Shauna's work is about joy. She teaches a one-on-one workshop called Discover Your Joy, leads writing workshops, facilitates joy retreats, uh, and speaks about joy in keynote speeches and part of panels. She also writes a, a subscription newsletter called Finding Your Joy. Shauna teaches that choosing to practice hard-won joy is a revolution. I want to repeat that. Shauna teaches that choosing to practice hard-won joy is a revolution. Recently, Shauna's daughter told her, quote, Mama, you are really good at making people feel enthusiastic about life, unquote. (laughs) Shauna decided to add this comment to her bio since this is the crux of what matters to her. Welcome, Shauna. Thank you so much, ladies. I'm so happy to be talking with you today. It's joy. Pure joy. Um, And I can say firsthand that being with Shauna, being in her presence, hearing her laughter, and I've read her book, 
and it is it is life changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and as part of a podcast that's about the stories that the body holds and the mm-hmm. story that the body tells, I can only imagine that as part of your journey has been an influence. But I I just I, I'm going to let you t- talk most of it, and I know mm-hmm. Teresa wanted to to jump into just to kind of get the the wheels greased. Great, thanks, Jerry. I have just recently, Sherry, introduced me to you and your work and your books. And I immediately went over to your Instagram account and have been enjoying your need some joy today post. <laughs> These your your short daily inspiration is a great way to wake up in the morning. Mm. And we're talking about Anamaya Kosha today. Mm. Right. This is our food body. And I think your combination of skills between the gluten free girl and joy Mm. are such a great way for us to discuss this. And you have mentioned that you make a habit of joy. So can you talk a little bit about how you form that habit and how joy shows up in your body? Yeah, it's such a good question. And it's going to not be a short answer. (laughs) Um, Got some time. I, when, when COVID began and the lockdowns began in March of 2020, both of our kids came home from school and we saw it coming like long in the distance. Cause I was paying attention. And so my husband and I thought, when are they going to close schools? Okay, here we go. And we prepared for it by allowing them to just have a couple of days off. I saw on Facebook the first night that school was off, like, oh, yay. Women were preparing these color-coded schedules they'd already laminated of what the school day was going to be like on the Friday. And I thought, wait a second, they've lost all of their friends, their routines, their teachers. They're, they've lost the ability to leave the house for six weeks, which is hilarious now. It was end up 18 months. But at the time, it seemed like six weeks. And I thought first, we're not going to have school tomorrow. We're going to watch movies. We're all going to like sit around and talk about this and make sure they understand that this is weird and hard, but we're going to get through it. And so I felt very capable. I'm, I'm, I, you know, being a good mama is really important to me. And I also have three people who have ADHD. So I'm sort of in charge of the sort of overmind of the house. Right. And I thought that's what we need to do is convey to them that we are confident and that we know that they're going to be fine. And then that night after they were done with school, I woke up in a blind panic, a cold sweat, because I thought, oh gosh, this is going to be just like it was when I was a kid. I was isolated when I was a kid for decades. Um, I was not allowed to do anything that people think was normal for childhood or teenagehood. My mother's fears were the most important and only thing in the house. And so I didn't know life outside of my small house for a long, long time. And there were other really traumatic things going on in that house as well. So my brain woke up and thought, we're going to be trapped in the house with kids. I'm not going to be able to leave. I can't have any alone time. I can't even go to the store. What is, what are we going to do? And truly as I walked upstairs and looked out of the darkness, the word joy sort of appeared in front of my head in red letters. And what I thought about the next few days is to realize that the difference between my life now during COVID and beyond, and the difference when I was a kid is that I could have joy. I could create joy for my kids. There wasn't much joy growing up, even though there were little happy, joyful moments, but there weren't any moments of joy that weren't also occluded by, oh gosh, but they're going to start fighting any moment. When is this going to end? I can't rely on this joy. And I thought the best thing I can give my kids is to give us all as much joy as possible to get through this. I was a high school teacher. I believe in teaching and academics and learning to read and write and being respectful. And I thought, oh, screw all of it. Who cares? This is unheard of for us. Let's let them learn through this 
through not just looking at a screen. And so they did remote school and they hated it. And then we'd say lunchtime, we'd watch John Krasinski's Some Good News. Or we, my kids got into this YouTube channel with this woman from India in a very small village who would cook massive amounts of one food and feed the entire kids. We watched one of those one or two a day. We watched um, Mo Willems drawing lessons. We skateboarded, rollerbladed, blue bubbles, pillow fights, jumping on the bed, whatever it took to ground us in that moment. And even though COVID was very, very, very hard, we're lucky we didn't lose anybody or any of our own. And I live in an, a rural island off Seattle, where right now 90% of us 12 and up are vaccinated. And so I was in a safe space because everyone took it seriously. And to my complete amazement, within a few months, I realized I was doing better than I had been before COVID. And it was because I was prioritizing my joy. And so as this time continued, I realized like a lot of the trauma responses I had, um, I got diagnosed with CPTSD in 2018. I was very serious at first about that. How do I heal from it? And there must be practices and people I can visit and massages and different things. But what I quickly realized with this work is that joy is the great healer, allowing yourself to have joy and creating a life designed around your own joys which means you don't really listen to society and what they think you should do. It has healed me more profoundly than anything before. And so now I teach people how to do that. So, you know, joy in the model that we've been using, this kosher model, which goes from the physical, from the gross to the subtle, joy could fit into any one of those sheets. Mm -hmm. It could fall, you know, beautifully into, you know, how does joy show up in the body? How yep. does it help heal the physical piece? Because one thing I also know about you is that you are <laughs> like the perfect balance of right and left brain. You know, <laughs> Teresa and I, you know, we sort of yep. represent the yin and the yang. Teresa's much more yin. I'm much more yang. I'm a little bit more right brain. She's a little more left brained. But when you choose to know something or mm -hmm. to dive into something, because one of the things I also love about you is that you are very curious about the things you don't know. Mm -hmm. So once you get your eyeballs or your mind or your heart sort of hooked into that thing, you become something of an expert. Mm -hmm. you know, because it matters to you to, mm -hmm. to gather the data, to gather the anecdotes and the hard data to formulate um, your own idea of what that is. Yeah, so absolutely. When it comes to joy, you know, how would you connect that feeling of joy, the practices of joy, the um, results of joy? Like, what does it do to the body, to the brain? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't really think I know exactly how to ask this question, yeah. but I think you know what I want to ask. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I know you. I know exactly what you want to ask. <laughs> Well, I love that you describe me that way because it's absolutely true. I grew up in a house where feeling obliterated facts. There was no factual evidence in our house that would have changed anything. It was all fear and it was all, you know, lots of other emotions. And so as I've grown up, I've become more and more logical. The less I leave, you know, the, the farther away I'm from it, I've, I really, uh, I want to know things and studies and science. I'm obsessed with neuroscience. When I was a doctor, when I was a doctor, when I was a junior in high school, I wanted to be a doctor. And I was in an advanced anatomy and physiology class. We were the only class in the country in high school to have a cadaver. My teacher was an incredible doctor who chose to be a full-time high school teacher and was a doctor on the side. And he would bring in different doctors on Tuesday evenings. You had to be invited in and he would bring different body parts, knees and 
legs and tendon and arms. And, you know, and my senior year, I got to do the dissection on the cadaver. And I've never forgotten, forgotten the awe of that. And so I think that there's a lot of wonderful stuff out there. And a lot of it is based on feeling and feelings are important. We are a feeling beings who, who happen to think sometimes. <laughs> and so what I wanted to do was to find where in the brain does joy come from? How do we create more joy? So I went on a deep dive of neuroscience and neuroplasticity is one of my very favorite things because it means we are capable of change. And it turns out that our brains are built for practice. Our brains detest uncertainty. If you think about when first humans came along and our brains just haven't changed that much since early humans, their lives were very predictable. Now, modern humans say, oh no, they're brutal and terrible and honest, oh, awful, right? No, they weren't. <laughs> yes, they did. They have to scrounge and hunt and, you know, but they were outside all the time. They were never stopped moving. Everyone in the community had equal worth and equal weight. Everyone had a job. They never had to scrounge and hope that they could become famous to earn enough money. Like, you know, and so therefore in predictable lives, the, anything that was uncertain was dangerous. And our bodies became hardwired through our amygdala and the whole response system, which says uncertainty, danger. Unfortunately, we now live in a culture and not just in COVID times where everything is uncertain. Our body still reads being stuck in a traffic jam and being mad about it as though we're being chased by a tiger. There is no difference into the amygdala. So the amygdala res responds by sending out cortisol and serotonin and all kinds of different things that prepare you for hunting the tiger. Our pupils dilate, our heart races, our faces get flushed. And then when it's done, the parasympathetic nervous system says, hey, time to calm down. Let's just send out all those opioids. You can breathe easier now, right? Well, when you live in a culture where everything is stressful and everything is, you're being told that you're doing is wrong and not good enough, you're in a constant state of stress. And if like me, you grew up in a traumatic household, the um, my immune system, my brain, the way I respond to everything was formed in that trauma. And so my body holds all that trauma still or has for 50 years. <clears throat> and until you can learn to heal that and calm that system down and learn how to calm yourself down, that keeps happening. And that's why people who grew up with six or more ACE scores, which is adverse childhood experiences, those folks are at a much increased risk of cancer, heart attacks, strokes, depression, anxiety, because our bodies are still holding that score. And so joy is a way, if you can build a habit of it, to give yourself moments of joy. And I have to say here, my favorite thing that I teach in the workshop, because um, I'm a language geek too, is that we talk about happiness a lot in this culture. And we it's written into the Declaration of Independence is we have the right to pursue happiness, right? Notice it's not the right to happiness. <laughs> it's right for the pursuit, the chase. And happiness, the word comes from the 14th century Old Norse word, which means chance and luck. And it's the same root that makes up happenstance, which is a random occurrence. So if you understand that happiness is something outside of your body, it's something that happens if you happen to be in the right time and random occurrence happens to you. If you're lucky enough to win the lottery, if you're lucky, lucky enough to work really, 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 really hard and then you're recognized. But joy from the 1200 means an intense physical delight. Joy is of the body. Happiness is of the mind and the theory. And joy is in the body. And that's why I prefer it to happiness. That leads right into, and Teresa, I know you 
probably have questions too, but what you just said made me feel like, what does joy, taking away the emotional piece that it feels mm. good or it feels you know lovely or any other adjective mm. that would, what does mm. joy feel like in the physical body? Yeah. Is there a way to identify that maybe for those who have had trauma and other things where it may be harder mm -hmm. to, to, to interact with the feeling of mm -hmm. it, the, the more, mm -hmm. you know, um, emotional feeling that mm -hmm. if they can start with the physical feeling, something in their body that tells them there's joy there. Yeah. Is, do you have something like that that you can share? Yeah, absolutely. I start off everyone in the workshops to say like, make a list of your joys, but not big joys. Um, your small personal joys. Like I love the first cup of coffee in the morning. I do a meditation with Thich Nhat Hanh about smelling and savoring and holding the warm cup and then taking my first sip. And what that is, is just being fully present. And it's really hard in this culture to, to just be fully present. It's hard for humans in general. But what I find is that Anything that gives us joy where it's a creative act, where you're drawing something and you forget everything else, or you're playing sports, or you are in a moment of passion, or you are reading a book and no one is bothering you and you get to dive into that world. They're all intensely personal. Nobody has the same joys. You know, introverts, extroverts, ADHD, neurodivergency, everyone has a different thing that gives them joy. But in that moment, you are simply there. You're not worried you're not good enough. You're not worried you're not living it enough. You are just in the moment and at rest. And that I feel like is joy. You spoke about neuroplasticity and how much you loved neuroplasticity <laughs> uh, because it helped you to, to know and to understand that we can change, right? Yeah. That what is programmed in has options and we can change it. I'm just wondering, listening to you speak, uh, with the amount of joy that you're adding into your lifestyle by intentional choice, and also the part of your story that um, tells us that you had trauma as a child, mm. do you feel that the addition of that joy is speaking right to that ability to change, to yes. kind of release some of those triggers, to rewire the thoughts in the brain to be more, I don't know what the word is, maybe more open to noticing and embracing joy and to let the rest kind of slide into the background of this is the past and let's let it go. We've been reprogrammed or absolutely different choices. Absolutely. I mean, there is quite significant evidence in all parts of the brain that we know now that neurons that start firing together wire together. And so this is how we make a habit. And this is why I call it building a habit of joy. It's not like give yourself more joy because that's very ephemeral. It's that when our brain realizes something is important to us and we start practicing it, those neurons start firing together. And especially, especially because the uh, brain's reward system is built on dopamine. So dopamine is the feeling and anticipation of pleasure. And it's not the actual pleasure. It's the self. It's like, Ooh, I took a bite of that cake and I'm going to take another bite. Right. But actually five different different areas of the brain are activated by that. It's the amygdala it sends out, Ooh, this feels good. And immediately it stops sending out tense, nervous, scared, angry, whatever it might be, fight, flight, or freeze, because it's now fully occupied with enjoying something. It also goes to the hippocampus, which is memory. I mean, obviously these are generalizations. It's more complicated than that. It goes to the prefrontal lobe, which is remember this bakery. Okay. <laughs> Let's take stock of this and come back here. So your brain gets activated when you are in a moment of joy in a different way than it does when you are in trauma. And 
if you do this and make a practice of it and deliberately seek out and build your life for more joy, eventually your brain starts to look for more joy because it knows what you're paying attention to. I love the fact there's a, a phrase, the uh, frequency illusion that we have, which is if you hear a word for the first time and you understand what it means, you suddenly hear it everywhere. Or you just make a decision, you're going to buy a new car and you've been looking and looking and you decide, okay, that's it. I want an old Volvo. Everything you see is an old Volvo. You can just pass them on the road. Like, is this magic? It is a sign I'm supposed to be buying one. No, what it is, is there's a part of the brain that says, she's paying attention to this. This seems to be important to her. And what's important to that part of the brain is like food, shelter, sex, because it continues the species, um, you know, security, making sure you're safe and like whatever else you're interested in. And so that part of the brain says, ooh, we're busy filtering the millions of things you're seeing because you can't possibly take them all in. But since that's important to you, we're going to let you see that. So you suddenly see every Volvo that goes by. And the same is true for, for joy. If you say, ooh, I want to look for the color pink, you see it everywhere. If you want to say, oh, I want something that makes me laugh and you spend time laughing, more things make you laugh. We actually can just work with our brain's natural propensities to give ourselves more joy. And interestingly enough, I mean, with all of the science and the hard data that you have and the curiosity that that draws it in, that makes you want to, to know these things, you haven't lost an, a, a speck of the magic. <laughs> I used to think that, you know, it was trying to find this balance between, you know, the upper subtle energies of the chakras that connect you to this divine energy, mm. and then the lower ones that keep us grounded. And that, you know, some people are really sort of excessive on the top, and they're all magic, but, but no ability to live in the real world. And then those who are grounded with none of the others have no magic. I just, again, in the world of balance, of harmony, mm -hmm. I feel like you embody and I'll use mm. the word embody because we're talking about Anamaya Kosha or we're not talking about Anamaya Kosha. We're using that as the lens through which we're exploring these particular um, right. avenues. Right. Um, well, thank so you. That I, feels very, very gratifying. And for me, I feel that too. You know, for me, it's about the word integration. You know, I, I know a lot of things, you know, I was raised to be academic and raised to be very good. And I was raised to be a straight A student and I got grounded if I got a B plus, it was crazy. And so for a long time, I only saw my worth by my grades and how often I raised my hands and got the right answer. But that was also the only way I could survive. There wasn't much else going on for me. And so that made me feel better. Um, I look back now in my 20s and I realized that I just thought that my body was a way to carry around my brain <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> I was very intellectual. But I also have this very dear, wonderful friend who's the wisest person I know. She's still one of my best. She's my best friend besides my husband. And she and I had gone through a lot together. I began teaching at 26 and she was my guide and she was my, she's 14 years older than I am. And she walked me through and I, I finally got brave enough to tell her the story of my life. I'd not told anyone before. And then I thought I got brave enough to go to New York for a, a fellowship for a summer. And I came back changed and said, that's it. I got to go. And as I was packing up one day on the, to move to New York, I said, Tita, you've been so wise and you've known everything for me before it happened. Tell me what I'm going to be like in 10 years. What do you know that I don't know yet? And she said, do you really want me to tell you this? And I said, sure. She's like, because I don't want to like, and I'm like, no, 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 no. I know, you know. And she looked at me immediately said, you're not going to be an intellectual in 10 years. All that intellectualism isn't going to matter to you at all. And she was right. It was my cover. My curiosity will never go away. And that is, I, I am determined to always tie these very beautiful personal feelings to our brains. Because I think brains are magic. I think they're amazing and we just underestimate them all the time, but that doesn't, you know, your brain's still part of your body if you're integrated.
and most of us don't really even know the, the magic comes because we don't know how it works like the mm -hmm. magic of an airplane flying we don't i don't know how that works but feels kind of magical to me but i know that still don't know. You know like screws and technology and whatever yeah yeah well, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, now that I, and, and this is me, I've always been this way. I've always been deeply curious. It was actually how I survived, was reading every book I could find. But I can't imagine going around in life and not knowing how my body worked and not knowing how my brain worked and not knowing how, what triggers me. Like, I'm angry. Why am I angry? Um, and I'll talk to other people and I'll say, oh yeah, well, did you ask yourself like why that made you angry? And then it never occurred to me. I'm like, what? <laughs> But I also had this joyful experience with Sherry of taking these wonderful uh, meditation retreat curriculums at Shambhala. And those were deeply, deeply important to me to let go of my intellectual and move, as move into my heart as well. You were instrumental. You, you know, I thought about you during the Ted Lasso moment, um, <laughs> the darts. Because first of all, I know you love Ted Lasso. Oh, yeah, but him. when they were throwing the darts and he's in England and the, the guy Rupert, who also played Rupert on Buffy, interestingly yeah. enough. Um, Stuart, Anthony Stewart Head, who just goes by Anthony Head now, in case you were interested. Um, okay. But he said, you know, most people, you, to be curious, because if you were curious, before we made this bet, you would have asked me, hey, have you ever played darts? And I would have said, yeah, you know, but this, you know, the bullies and the people who have really strong opinions about things that, and belief systems that, you know, digging the heels in, it's really hard to be curious and right at the same nah. time. I'll take you know, curious every time. I'll take curious every time. Curious is open. Curious is like, I could be wrong. Teach me, you know, um, judgmental is I know. And that's just insecurity. That's people desperately important to them to look right. And Teresa, you were going to ask a question. You, your friend mentioned that you wouldn't be an intellectual. I find this fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, Sherry and I often talk about our left brain, right brain balance. And mm -hmm you know, jokingly, our percentage of woo-woo versus um, <laughs> intelligence, right? right? All of it wrapped up in some sort of a curiosity of wanting to know more and looking mm -hmm. at different types of lenses. Yeah. But at the same time that you say you're not so academic, yeah. you have this vast knowledge about the brain and have found a way to take academics yeah. and bring them into something that's accessible for us to understand as an offering, a gift um, that we can treasure mm, by understanding how joy is processed, what the brain is going to do with it. So that, as you mentioned, when we ask for it, we get it. What we practice gets stronger, Absolutely. like this law of attraction. So mm -hmm. I see this balance between, mm. I am very intellectual, but curious and artistic all yeah. at the same time. I am too. And I, I specifically, instead of an intellectual, that's not, not to me some the, the, the word for someone who thinks, um, specifically because I was raised in academia. Both of my parents were the first in their families to go to college. And so they insist there was no question we we're going to college and we had to get straight A's. We had to get. And so I considered getting a PhD in literature because that was the path, right? But I knew I had this artistic writing part of me that was not going to be contained. I didn't want it to be contained there. And I was considering thinking about teaching high school, earning my master's to do that because I had had teachers who loved me. And I remember talking to one of my professors at the school I went to and telling her this. And she said, oh, I do hope you don't become a high school professor that's a high school teacher it's such a white trash profession. And I was like, well, you just made my decision for me. Thank you. 
<laughs> you just show me what academia is, I'm out, you know? So the idea of academia, which is, you know, the, you study and study and you share it in a journal and maybe 42 people read it. That was never going to be my path. So that's what I mean by non-intellectual, but I used to like quote Roka at, you know, every third sentence. And then I would talk about Heidegger. I like, I read all the greats until I got to New York and I started doing yoga and meditation and living and realizing that they were all dead white men. Um, and uh, I wanted more life than that. I'm going to ask you a question. It's a, it's a prefabbed question based okay. on one of your answers from our intake. And okay. one of the things we ask our guests is what's your favorite quote? And we don't always base our questions on the intake. It's kind of for us to, you know, inspire, get to know you a little bit better, but I know you. And I find it interesting because, you know, perfect timing with the Beatles movie um, docu-series out now. Love your that. quote, no surprise, is by John Lennon. And it's, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is on this path that has led you to joy, what happened to direct you here while you were making other plans? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I wasn't feeling much joy. You know, I, I now at 55, I'm perfectly fine with understanding that I'm a misfit. I was never going <laughs> to, you know, <laughs> I live in a rural island called Bashan and we all call ourselves the island of misfit toys from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I, when I was, trapped in my parents' house, I was pretending all the time, pretending I was normal, pretending that I, you know, I, just pretending, you know, uh, I learned to lie early to assuage my mom. And so uh, even when I got in the world, I was working really hard to fit in, you know, I'd go to parties and say, hey, what are you talking about? And trying to do it. None of that worked. And part of, thank you, my love. Part of what happened is that I thought it's perpetually my final, my trials and tribulations on the hero's quest is that I will try to get a full-time job with benefits <laughs> where I try to um, tie my work and my curiosity to somebody else's dream and in exchange, they'll give me a paycheck. It's hard to be a freelancer. It's hard to be, it's super hard for both of us are freelancers with kids. And so um, I kept thinking, oh, it would just be so much easier if I would just get a job. And every time I was wrong, every time it was a terrible experience um, and I'd learn a lot. And COVID was when I finally declared, that's it, I'm never gonna do it again. We're gonna make it work no matter how, and it's, it's fine. And so, I, even though I've loved that song, Beautiful Boy, I've sung it to both of my kids though, since the minute they were born every night. It didn't occur to me at the time that what I was doing was making the plans that would lead to happiness, thinking that I should still follow the idea that luck and chance will get me there. And now every day is different and every day is alive in our house. There's never a day where I think, well, we woke up, we did our things, we went to school, we did the dishes, we washed, you know, we did this and then we went to bed. Never, ever, ever. I mean, every day is, is honestly and a surprise, a joy, curious. It, I, I'm driven by my curiosity and by my joy now instead of, you know, trying to fit in. I'm really curious about, since we're talking about Anamaya Kosha and being the first gluten-free girl, and mm. I know that you've made that transition, when I think about joy and Anamaya Kosha, you know, I think about my favorite meal, you oh, know, yeah. the food sitting around a kitchen table yes. with, you know, people that I love and growing up in a family of eight children and two people, I grew up at a table with 10. Mm. So joy is very connected to food. And the yeah. idea that it's a gluten-free, um, you know, your gluten-free blog, my mom was gluten, uh, was had celiac. It took mm. a long time for 
people to realize and for her diagnosis to come through. But I also don't eat gluten. And it's mm-hmm. amazing how much the food has mm-hmm. changed mm-hmm. Oh, over that time and made <laughs> it so much joy, so, oh, so joyful, wow. even though, you know, not feeling like you're missing out on something. Right. So absolutely. It feels like you went from, uh, from my stomach right into joy, <laughs> which to me are almost the same thing. <laughs> you know, they are for me too. I mean, I've always loved food. I've always loved, I love to cook. I love to shop for uh, produce. We love to go to farmer's markets. Like, and my husband's a chef. So we definitely, food is like huge, huge, huge here for me. And he and I've had a lot of interesting conversations lately because he's no longer a chef and he, his love of food, which is immense for him, food is a creative act. It is what writing is for me or what speaking and teaching is for me. He gets an idea with flavors and I can recognize that look. I'm like, go, I got nothing here. Just go and do that thing, you know? Um, And for lunch, right before I came here, he made this incredible butternut squash soup with coconut milk and duca, which is a North African blend. Um, And it was rich and thick, no dairy, no, no anything, just that. And then we also had a big salad with pomegranate seeds and a Parmesan vinaigrette. And, you know, this is just normal life around here. When I began Gluten-Free Girl, I'd always thought of food as my joy. And for a number of years, it was felt like my only joy when I was a kid. So I've always been attuned to it. And when I finally got diagnosed with celiac, I had been through six months of really what appeared to be fatal illness. People were really writing me off thinking I had cancer of some kind they couldn't figure out. So when I found out that all I had to do was avoid eating gluten, I thought, well, hey, you know, peaches are gluten-free and steak is gluten-free and most chocolates are gluten-free. So whatever, I'm fine. You know, Um, I don't have to do chemotherapy. I don't have to do surgery. I don't have to take medication the rest of my life. I'm going to be able to heal my body by myself by doing, eating good food. Like this is great. And at the same time, I looked all around the internet. This is 2005. So it's a very different land. There was nothing. There was no information. And what small amount of information there was, was dreary. It was a lot of women who felt lousy about themselves because they couldn't eat gluten and they felt like they were standing out at a party and they didn't fit in. And, you know, oh, we'll never eat at a restaurant again. I go to these forums and they could, what? So when I wrote Gluten-Free Girl and started writing just for friends, I was equal parts joyful, truly. Like, have you ever eaten amaranth? Like this thing is amazing. The leaves, you know, I get on my excitement but at the same time I was also pissed off that I had never heard of this when it was the most underdiagnosed disease in America and so my teaching kicked in and I began writing with that but I also just like you know oh, I want you to be enthusiastic about this too and my motto always was stop thinking about the gluten just try every food you've ever never heard of that is gluten-free you know omoboshi plum paste and um um, harissa and you know whatever it might be chickpea pasta which i now adore and so i think that's why people were really drawn to the website they the first person found it i thought who's this crazy person stranger leaving me a comment and then it grew from there because it was really just for friends and there was a real community there the first three or four years was true community it was also before social media existed so you could actually have community in the comment section and that's where the joy was for me absolutely and then it became commercial and then it, you know, capitalism and it became less joyful. <laughs> so you felt the joy in your body. I remember, I remember the moment that you were, you were diagnosed yeah. and I remember going to your apartment constantly, was it 110th street, 107th? No, I got diagnosed in um, Seattle actually. Oh, so I you know, I got diagnosed about it. No, no, it was in no. Seattle. 
So uh, timeline-wise, because I just remember your counters being covered with white flour. You were always baking pies. I like love there baking. Was just, you would go to your apartment and there, if it wasn't covered with flour, there was remnants of flour. Yeah. And that I remember having a conversation with you and I don't remember exactly what it was, but there was some, you had a choice to make. And the yeah. choice was, you know, you, you loved baking these pies and you loved, you know, this, this world, you know, I could either give up or basic, and I don't like binary choices, but yeah. this was one of those but things I where I could, you know, just go into it. And thankfully, mm -hmm. you know, we mm -hmm. do practices in place and a sense of, of mindfulness there that my goodness, you have really, you, you were one of the pioneers mm. of, of sharing gluten-free information. And again, yeah. that was, I think, one of the first times that I recognized in you that, because I'd seen you do it before, to kind of, whether there was gardening, you know, helping with a gardening book or, you know, going into gluten-free, that you really, you went into it with both eyes open, with your mm -hmm. heart wide open, with mm -hmm. no idea of what was going to be on the other side. And mm. what you did was you created a cottage industry, really, yeah. in a field that was, Un, unlisted, as they yeah. say on YouTube, it was like only people who had the link knew what it was. <laughs> you know, there was no no big sense of what celiac. What's that? Gluten? I've heard of it. It's yeah. you know. I mean, when I grew up, I just have to say, my parents never had Wonder Bread. Where everyone had Wonder Bread, we had like the first whole wheat bread that was oh. like held together by little bits of gluten. It was like sawdust and gluten in a in an orange bag, um, cellophane bag. You know, it really was just all my insatiable curiosity for whatever reason I was born with this. And it, it, I just, I also think I don't dwell on or I feel even bad about what happened to me when I was a kid because I worked my way through it. And I know that I am who I am because of it. Um, and I can help other people who've been through it. I feel like that's some sort of karmic guide that I can do. But man, I just, I'm curious about everything. If you, you know, if you stop and tell me about your joy and you're an iron worker, I want to hear the whole thing. I want to hear why you love it. I want to hear what you do. How did you come to it? You know, but I also know that well, yeah, when I was first diagnosed, I actually gave away all my baking goods, all my baking books, everything thinking, well, I'm not going to be baking again. Cause then, then about three months in, I'm like, that's just stupid. I'm going to go, <laughs> you know? like, I just couldn't stop that. And then actually we closed the site down in 2018 because the landscape had changed so much. You know, they're like, oh, you have to be on Snapchat if you want to be a business. I'm like, I don't want to be on Snapchat. No, it's not Snapchat. It's TikTok. It changes every two seconds. And again, it was that outward thing that that would bring me happiness, that I would do the right things and perform the right dance that eventually would lead people to our site that would earn us enough money that we could rest. And I was like, why don't we just rest? <laughs> Let's just do that first. But um we're launching in January something called the Joy of Community, which I'm really excited about. It is a website and an app that allows people to come over and it's like our own social media. And when you come over there, if you're a member, all you'll find is joy, the joy of music. You can go into that room and talk about the Beatles, the joy of certainly of food, the joy of understanding the science of your mind. Like, you know, there are just going to be categories you can go to every day and quotes I'll put up and the new membership that we're building is actually called the Joy of Gluten-Free Girl. We're going to bring it back, but only on our own terms. Those three, first three or four years when Danny and I were both creating and excited and curious and people would make our recipes and we'd think, what? This is amazing. Um, we're going to go back to that so people can be in on that creative process again. So, you know, life kind of returns. <laughs> I am constantly struck by your courage. Mm. You know, you built a community that was tens of thousands of people. Yeah, and hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like 175,000 or something like that. 125,000. So oh, on Facebook. Yeah. yeah we had 175,000 on Twitter and 125,000 on Facebook, but I took both of them down. But because you had the courage to listen 
to be mm. curious about the messages that your body was sending you, mm. the story mm. that this is someone else's story, someone else who wants to have, you know, 500 million people, you know, yeah. un, untethered and, you know, doing their thing. But you were able to, with, with discernment and wisdom and compassion for yourself and for this community, sever that. You know, mm-hmm. and say, you know, this is not really what I want, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to go along that and to build it, you know, mm-hmm. you built it, they came and then, you know, it became something else. And so that is also a testament to the, the presence that you have, the presence of mind, the presence of mindfulness of the moment and how, you know, practicing anything can create yeah. that that habit so the habit of joy in the body is, mm-hmm. is a doable thing mm-hmm. and i think that's Absolutely. a message i would love for people to know that it is doable there yeah. is it's kind of like um what is it the the four noble truths that i know that not every it's a buddhist thing where you know life is suffering you know that you have this choice there's a path that you can take and it's and then you present the eightfold right. path there's a way right. to you know help with that you have, have a method. Like, I don't want you to give away your, your secrets. I have no secrets. But in terms of what you teach and, you know, because mm. people should work with you, people should, should get excited about yes. the work you're I'd doing. But if you could give maybe a little goodie bag of a bullet or two of how people can sure. start the process of bringing more joy. Sure. Well, the one thing I, like I was saying earlier, our brains are built to find uncertainty dangerous which is why everybody clings to stories, right? Immediately we meet someone, we have a story in our heads about who they are or who we are in comparison to them. Um, none of them are true, <laughs> but we, we are storytellers. We also will do anything to unvoid, avoid uncertainty, including staying in a job we don't like, staying in a marriage that's not good for us, all those things because it's familiar. So enter COVID and everything is uncertain. We've had wave after wave of, okay, lockdowns are done, but we still can't really go inside. If you're being a, oh, these people are going inside. Oh, these states are catching COVID. What is the deal? Why won't you wear a mask? You know, it is it's, it seeps into our brain, even if we're trying to keep our information little, which is like what I do too. And because our brains don't like uncertainty and we're living in a deeply uncertain time, we are, we're all suffering from pandemic brain. Harvard did a study a couple of months ago, I believe, where they studied adults who had come out of COVID time relatively unscathed. They did not lose someone they love. Nobody got sick. They didn't lose their jobs. And you know, just, you know, we're in isolation and lockdown like the rest of us. And to the one, they all had brain fog, language and memory impairments, exhaustion, uh, nervousness, depression, anxiety for some of them. And Harvard has labeled it pandemic brain and decided that it is a medical condition because it is. It is our brains having that constant radio static noise behind of, but is it going to be okay? Oh no, here comes Omicron. Are we going to have to go inside again? Are we going to have to have lockdown? You know, all of those things are constantly running tape loops in our head. And so because our, our brains like to build patterns, our brains like certainty and habits are certainty. We get up at the same time and we drink our coffee, you know, out of coffee. Ah, you know, that's why everyone freaks, not just because of the coffee, but because we want our routine. So let's use that brain's propensity and build a habit of joy instead. And once you learn how to build a habit, and I've done a lot of research on that, which I teach in my joy workshops, like how to make a habit that sticks instead of saying, oh, in the new year, I'm going to exercise more. And then you see the parking lots of gyms full until about January 20th. And that's, you know, that's never going to work because there's no intention to create and change your own identity in this. And so 
once you make a habit that sticks, those neurons that fire together, wire together. And you've suddenly not only created a habit that will stick, which helps with our uncertainty, but you've created a habit of joy. And I find that particularly for women, we are enculturated to not put ourselves first. We are told that we need to do everything for our families, for our community, for our partners, whatever it might be. We all, a lot of us come last, especially if you're raised in trauma. So deciding that your life can be more joyful, making a habit is actually also a way of you teaching yourself that you matter too. It is so interesting to listen to you talk about putting yourself first, mm. right? Because so many people will talk about things where they put themselves first uh, in terms of, I did this, so I'm going to reward myself with that, right? right? Now, putting ourselves first is somehow something that needs to be earned and a yeah. reward yeah. rather than that pattern of joy that just opens up our view of life. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, it's like, <laughs> it's the airplane role where you hear, okay, mothers, before you put the um, oxygen mask on your child, put on yourself first, because you need to make sure you're in the right mind to be able to take care of them. We should need a life-threatening emergency to do that. That should be what we do in general. You know, I've got a seven-year-old and a 13-year-old. They both have ADHD. They're both extraordinary, amazing people. I feel so lucky to know them, but it is very complicated in our house sometimes. And so if I make the schedule and I stand by the door with the clipboard, Desmond, do you have your coat? Go get it. Do you have your, you know, the things that you have to do and put into routine to make, make sure that they leave the house clothed. Those are exhausting. They are absolutely exhausting. So I know I need to get up an hour before they do. So even if it's early, I have a little time to myself. I can read, I can sip my coffee. I can stare at Instagram and a haze, you know, all that stuff and give myself permission to do that. Not think, oh, I should use this time for something useful. And a lot of joy has to do with letting go of the notion of productivity. You know, we've been totally sold this bill of goods that we're only worthy if we're working. And it's just not true. And anyone who's had an injury or an illness, I had a, a TIA, a mini stroke in 2015, which was terrifying. And it really opened all of this for me because my doctor said to me, I was, he said, your brain's healthy, your heart is healthy, but I lost all feeling the left side of my body. We were in the ambulance, you know, I couldn't talk, which was the truly terrifying thing for me. My thoughts wouldn't come and it all resolved within 24 hours, which means it was a mini stroke instead of a full blown. And my doctor at the time was kind of one of my gurus said, we know that stress does physical damage to the body. We know that. Um, now I know, understand it better by understanding A scores and trauma in the body. But at the time, I just I listened to him and he said, I want you to look at every single thing in your life that causes you stress. And then I want you to let them all go because this is going to keep you alive. And that was the beginning of this journey. You know, that is such great advice. I once... Uh had a biopsy on my breast to check for breast cancer. Um, Dr. Beth Dupree was, was my doctor and she's mm -hmm. amazing. So I went in for the results, mm -hmm. you know, and it's a long time waiting and it's a stressful time to wait for oh, results like that. Oh, yeah. And as I sat in her treatment room waiting for her to come in, I could <clears throat> have that feeling of nervousness within my body. Right. And she came in and sat down and she says, I just want to tell you, you don't have breast cancer. And I'm yeah. like, wow, this is like the moment she said, but she said all day long, I tell women that they 
that they do have breast cancer, that this is a reality in a lot of people's lives. And she mm -hmm. said, and immediately what happens is they start reducing the stress in their life and things that um, yes. are out of control and they wheel everything in, in this way to be able to reduce their stress and set themselves up for the best healing. So my story yep. is Do you don't have breast cancer, <laughs> go simplify your life, get rid of your stresses and um, you it. know, start on this path of prevention and mm -hmm. recognizing that, you know, stress does, it has damage to the body. So if you would have changed it, if I said yes, change it because yep. I said no. That's beautiful. I had a similar experience. I had, um, uh, I had to get a mammogram every six months because my mom and all three of her sisters had had breast cancer. Um, they didn't have BRCA. They all grew up in four different parts of the country. And so they didn't, they were confused as to what was going on, but they knew that they had high risk. So I went and got, a, uh, you know, a mammogram, which always turned into an ultrasound, which always turned into a biopsy every six months. And sometimes in there was actually, you know, we're like, oh, we don't know. And I had one that was a sort of precancerous cells. And at the time that was when Lucy was like a year and a half. And they said, well, you could get a preventive double mastectomy. And I thought, well, I still want to have another kid. And I was scared. I was just scared. And, or you could go on this medication that could help to prevent it. So I did that for a while. Then it turned on me and I hated it. Right. So then I went to finally get my genetic testing done. And the woman who did the genetic test by asking all kinds of questions, family history, age of all things, you know. And she looked at it and went, uh, and I said, what's up? And she said, I'm not sure I want to tell you this. And I said, no, I really want to know now. And she said, you have a 93% chance of developing breast cancer in your life. I'm like 93%. And she was mortified and horrified for me. And I was so in shock. I went home and told my husband, I was like, well, I always did get straight A's. Here I go again. You know. <laughs> and I turned it into a joke for a year. And then I thought, what am I doing? And I had another biopsy, you know, I had another mammogram, ultrasound biopsy. And I went to my oncologists because I had one for when that, that scare happened. And I said, what do you think about this? I'm thinking I should just get this nestectomy. And she said, what are you waiting for? You're a sitting duck. 93% means you are going to get it. And I said, yeah, I know. But I just figure like, well, when it does happen, I'll just get them off. And she said, Chana, don't get cancer. Every day I have patients come in who had cancer that had seven years and it's not had cancer and they have cancer again. And then it's moved to the rest of their body. Just don't get cancer. And I scheduled the, the appointment the next day, that day, that afternoon. Um, and I had a double mastectomy and I stayed flat, which I'm so thrilled with because breast implants are horrible. Um, but more than that, my body just said, why are we going to pretend we have breasts? And everyone liked them that much. There's so, you know, like... <laughs> I had very large breasts. I hated it. I wanted to climb trees <laughs> and play baseball, you know? And so that, that whole experience changed me because I really do believe it was the first time in my life that I made a decision to advocate for myself and my own continued health instead of trying to clean up the mess afterwards, which is what I was trained to do in my household and everything's changed since then too. Well, I, kind of like we're coming up to the end of our hour of our, mm -hmm. our talking and I want to leave space for you to say anything else that you would love for people to know 
and to, you know, promote, to say what you're working on. You know, we're here, we want everyone, this is a community. And what I have found in all of the communities that are most meaningful is that um, Stacy always says, you know, all arise with the tide. And I always say, you know, when you lift one, you lift them all. You like everyone's candle with yours and then we can all shine bright. And I just would love for you to tell people where they can find you. Um, You know, what do you want people to know? And if you want to end on something light, you can, Um, you know, however you want to, this is your your moment to shine. Another moment, because- Thanks, my friend. Um, Well, my website is youcanhavemorejoy.com. And that's truly what I wanted people to understand. It's not that you'll only have it through me. You can find it all kinds of places, but I would love to be people's guide because that truly is my greatest joy is helping other people find their joy. Um, I teach a workshop called Rediscover Your Joy, which is, um, I do some one-on-ones, uh, but I mostly do, am going to be doing this because, um, well, we can't meet in person for a while with Omicron. We'll figure that out. So it's uh, uh, 12 people and we do a four session. Uh, Sherry has done it. It was an amazing experience for me to work with you. You get emails every day and it really is that chance to pra- hold on to and practice your joy for four weeks you're thinking about every day. And at the end of those four weeks, I've seen some incredible changes in people and then also community. Um, <clears throat> I am also offering um, every month tw- for $25, a seminar called Build a Habit of Joy, which is for anyone to come to. I give you the gist of it. I send you home with some stuff. And if you want more, you can come to that workshop. But really, it's important to me that things are affordable for people. We don't want to make joy into something elitist and classist. Um, And actually, anything that's on my website is pay whatever you want. So if people have the need for this, but they don't have the budget right now, I've been there. Um, Essentially, it's name your own price. And I also teach a workshop called The Joy of Writing Your Own Story. Because what I find is that so many of us, and particularly women, have been enculturated again by schools and teachers to think they're not good writers and that there's a right way to write things and they want to tell their stories, but they're terrified of it. So I'm teaching them how to free themselves um, and trust themselves in their words. The thing I'd like to end on is that I really have come to believe, and you said that, that you know, deciding to practice your joy and live a life of more joy is a revolution. This is not a culture built for joy. We know that. We know that there's a culture built for pressure and stress and status and all kinds of different things. There are so many things that need changing this culture. I don't think we're going to change them by yelling about them. And I do believe that we have to be the change we want to see. And my experience is that as you feel more joy, you want to share more joy and you want to look out for other people's joy. And there is this weird thing in America and it's come back, sadly. It was gone during COVID a little bit. Um, COVID still goes on, but this has come back, which is you ask most people, how are you doing? And they all say, oh, I'm so busy, so busy. I'm exhausted. Like it's a badge of honor to be busy when they're just telling me I don't take care of my body and I don't honor my own life. So instead I start with joy. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing really well. I went on this hike this morning in the woods and I'd never been on this one. And it's so beautiful. You should go fish a pond. You should totally go to fish a pond, maybe make it on your day on Saturday because it, I just felt alive when I was there. And every person I talked to that way goes, you know, they're just a smile on their face and like someone is being human and someone is sharing something good. So if you truly want to practice your joy, you share your joy and watch the ripples spread throughout everyone you meet. And then who knows what they go home and have a better story to tell someone. It, it just, it, it really, it just is as contagious <laughs> as hatred. It's as contagious as anger. And I think it's even more contagious than COVID. Joy spreads if you share it. And I really believe, like, imagine America if every person you met was joyful. 
that's it. You know, imagine if every person you met was joyful and therefore more forgiving and therefore not so prone to anger and therefore not so immediately wanting to blame you or take a side that was meant that you were a name they called you. If actually everyone said, I have many moments a day where I feel like I'm at rest and I'm myself and I'm painting again, or I am, you know, swimming in cold water, which a friend of mine does, not me. Um, or, you know, you just, you feel people's rest. You feel people feeling like they're themselves and that they don't have to hide or pretend or strive. What would America be like if we were all like that? I mean, we can't even fathom it. I think this is a private question. I was just going to say the same thing, <laughs> Sherry. We both took off our mics. It's like, that is like the perfect, perfect way to, um, to end this fabulous conversation. Mm. Thank you so much. And, thank you. And oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for doing this podcast. Anything about the body and anatomy, I'm all there. <laughs> oh my gosh. And you, I mean, yes, 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 yes. Thank you, Shauna. We are going to put links in the show notes. So mm -hmm. remember to go to youcanhavemorejoy.com and, and just, you know, gather the joy. We want to thank our guest, Shauna Ahern, for her open-hearted conversation about her journey to joy and how her understanding of how her body works provided a roadmap to get her to her mission of making joy the standard and inspiring people that they can have more joy too. Join us for episode seven, when we welcome Valerie Gay, whose mission is, and I quote, to use my gifts and talents to encourage, inspire, and empower others to seek and find their own life's potential so that they can each make the world a better place, end quote. Valerie's positive energy is infectious and grounded in her faith and the bigger good. Talking with Val leaves a palpable residue that anything is possible. Pranamaya Kosha, life force energy, will be the lens through which we view this conversation. Thank you for listening to Anecdotal Anatomy. We are so grateful for every listen, subscribe, and follow, as well as hearing your stories. So keep them coming. Swing by our YouTube channel for all of our teasers and other video content as the library grows. Email your kosha stories, questions, and musings to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. We may read your story on air one day. And please, share this podcast with your people. A shout out to our editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny, who composed and performed our music, and our photographer, Cindy Fatsis who we see for seeing us. See you next time. See you next time.